Um, want to remind you about Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we're going to look at what about the dinosaurs. We're going through the book of Genesis, and I want you to be completely and totally confident that the Bible account of history, of where things came from, how they originated, not evolved. Uh, we're going through the book of Genesis. The feedback I've gotten has been tremendous from this series. So we're going to answer one of the biggies. What about the dinosaurs? The Bible talk about the dinosaurs? Say anything about them? It does. And so we're going to look at that, give you some answers by which to answer the skeptics. And they abound out there. Amen? All right. Now, last week talked about the ox in the barn. If you weren't here, that just sounds like Greek to you. But you need to get the CD because we talked about the importance of the Holy Spirit in the church, that the Lord gave the Holy Spirit. And I really do encourage you to get that CD. I want to continue today. This series I'm calling Wanted, A Move of God. Anybody in here want a move of God? Some of you, when I say that, you don't even know what I mean. And I want you, you're my target audience today, particularly. I want you to understand what a move of God is. Now, what does a move of God look like? Let's read Acts 2 verse 1. Going back historically to the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. You can flip it there. Thank you. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. Now, that's such a strong statement. I, wanted, I pulled out a couple of other translations to show you the force of this statement. First, the roaring of a mighty windstorm. Then, another version says, the blowing of a violent wind. That's the NIV. Now, the NASB, New American Standard, says a violent rushing wind is what it sounded like. And then the Message Bible says, like a strong wind, like a gale force. And then finally, the Amplified Bible puts it this way, the rushing of a violent tempest blast. Wow. The rushing of a violent tempest blast. Now I ask you, did the Holy Spirit fall with force? This is not something you could just ignore. This was not something happening in the corner. This was out front. You couldn't deny it. You could not get away from it. God sent His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. And we pray you will bless it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, turn your cell phones off and have a seat. <laughs> All right, now, I want you to notice that the move of God was the falling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. It is not some intangible, He is not some intangible force, like Star Wars, the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has feelings. The Bible says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you can vex the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit experiences uh, joy. The Holy Spirit has thoughts. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. The Holy Spirit can enter a room, can enter a place. As we're going to see a little bit later in the message, the Holy Spirit can actually descend upon a town or a city. The Holy Spirit is God's omnipresent presence everywhere at once. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent everywhere at once. In the dens of iniquity, he sees it. And in the places of worship, he is there. But there is a difference between the Holy Spirit being everywhere at once and the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit of God inhabits, dwells in, lives in the praises of God's people. When you worship God either alone or with a group, the Holy Spirit descends and inhabits that praise. And that's how, why we need to learn to practice the presence of God in our own personal lives. You ought to worship Him in rush hour traffic. Worship Him in the car. Worship Him in the office to yourself and God. Don't get fired. But, see, we need to, as a people of God, practice the presence of God because He has given to us the Holy Spirit to fellowship with us, to lead us, to teach us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to give us His peace, to assure us in the presence of a storm. Now, the move of God, this falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was dynamic, dramatic, inescapable. You couldn't deny it. And the Bible says that it was so powerful, so strong, they spoke in languages they had never learned, earthly dialects that they had never learned. And many different nations represented on the day of Pentecost for that celebration heard the wonderful works of God spoken in their own language by people that had never learned that language. So the Spirit of God fell in miraculous power. And they said, how can this be? What can this mean? And Peter answered by first telling them where the Holy Spirit came from, where this dynamic outpouring, this miracle came from, this mighty rushing wind that everybody heard. He said, so then, Peter stood up and said, so then, exalted to the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, talking about Jesus, having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he, Jesus, has poured out what you see and hear. The Holy Spirit is given by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you confess Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, He immediately imparts the Holy Spirit into your life, the power of the Holy Spirit. Please understand that Jesus did not just come to give us a, a, a philosophy of living. He didn't just come to teach some neat things that gave people Holy Ghost bumps. He came to teach us how to live, and then He gave us the power to live that life. He gave us power. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs, but it is a power, a power to live by, a power to walk with God. Jesus had promised His disciples that He would give them the Holy Spirit when He had died and was resurrected. He said, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I am going away because they were heartbroken that he had told them, I'm going to be taken away from you. He said, hey, 
Don't be heartbroken. It's to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I did not go away, the Spirit would not come to you. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. Jesus promised that He would send the Holy Spirit upon His church. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The prophet Joel had said that after the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, God spoke through Joel and said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That's God talking in the first person. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. So if you're seeing visions, you're a young man. If you're dreaming dreams, you're an old man. But thank God something's going on in your life. What he's telling us here is that normal, everyday, workaday folks would experience the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon their life. And we begin to move in a supernatural arena that was unheard of in the days of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, please understand today that the outpouring of the Spirit of God had been restrained until Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The Old Testament folks did not experience what we do today. You had King David moved on by the Holy Spirit. Yes, God moved on His prophets, but the mass of the people, the common folks, the ones that were not in some uh, ministerial vocation, did not experience the outpouring of the Spirit of God like you and me can today. Jesus, uh, John testified in John 7 that prior to Jesus' crucifixion, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the whole outpouring of the Spirit of God awaited the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus told His disciples before ascending back into heaven as they stood on the Mount of Olives, he told them why the Spirit would come. And let me tell you today why the Spirit of God has come. The Spirit of God has not come so that we can uh, somehow play in, the, play in the power like you would play in a pool in the backyard. The Spirit of God did not come just so that we would have an experience that was exhilarating, though it is exhilarating when the Spirit of God comes upon you. Because the Bible says the Spirit of God brings the love of God and pours the love of God abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So when you get saved, God pours His love right into the inside of you, into your innermost, innermost. You experience the love of God, and it comes by way of the Holy Spirit. But that's not why He gave the Spirit. That's not the end purpose. He said, you will receive power. You will be clothed with power. Literally, you would be baptized in the Spirit. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Why has the Spirit of God come upon us? Because He gives us power to tell about Jesus. There is a power in the words of a believer. When a believer shares with an unbeliever the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a power. I'm, I'm not preaching right now alone. I'm not preaching in my own strength. I have asked the Lord to help me today, and I'm very aware of a power in the room. Jesus said there would be a power 
that would rest on his church. A power that would be evident among his people. A power that he would pour out. Buddha didn't say that. Muhammad didn't say that. No other world religious leader said that. Jesus said, I'm going to anoint my church with a supernatural power. And when that power comes upon you and you share me with other people, you're not alone. Something, someone is standing there. And when you witness, there is a power working with you to move on their life. And I'm going to talk to you in just a moment about what it does. Think about this. When you look at the life of Simon Peter, just days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter is experiencing fear and cowardice and panic in front of a little damsel girl, a little young teenage girl who said, you were with him, weren't you? He said, no, I was not. Yes, you were. I saw you. No, you didn't. Yes, you were. And then Peter began to curse, call down curses, and he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times and went back to his old vocation and thought his life was over. Of course, the Lord restored him. He always does. But then notice after the power of the Spirit of God fell, Peter was among the 120, 120 people who were standing in that upper room. And when the power of the Holy Spirit fell, like a rushing mighty tempest, and the sound of it filled the whole room where they were, and everybody out there on the day of Pentecost began to hear it, who was it that stood up and began to explain what was going on? The man who just a couple of days before had been a coward stood up in front of a skeptical crowd and clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter, began to preach the gospel. How did that happen? That happened because he had been clothed with supernatural power. I can't tell you what I owe in my personal life to the power of the Holy Spirit. When God touched me, it was completely and totally supernatural. I was not raised in church, didn't know anything about church, wouldn't have known John 3.16 if you had had me quote it with a gun to my head. Knew nothing about the death and resurrection of Jesus, didn't know one Bible verse, had been raised in a secular home, and yet when I called out on the name of the Lord and got saved and got into the presence of where God was moving, suddenly a power came over my life that I cannot describe to you. It washed over me. It filled me with the love of God. It set my heart on fire. The whole reason I preach today is not that it was a career choice. No, I didn't make a career choice. God laid his hand on my life and put the fire of God in my heart. And that's why I preach. And I don't know how any preacher stands in the pulpit without the ministry of the Holy Spirit helping them. I don't know how anybody makes it in the Christian church without the power of the Holy Spirit. I am more dependent on Him today than I've ever been in my life. Finally, Jesus commanded His disciples, you better wait for the Spirit's outpouring before you go minister anything because you won't be able to minister a thing until the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift He promised. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Good news is that baptism in water, the word there means to immerse, to dunk somebody completely in And the same word is used with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't just touch the believer, doesn't just kind of whisk by the believer, but the Bible says the believer is dunked in, baptized in, clothed in, surrounded by, encompassed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing like the power of the Holy Spirit when He begins to move in a room, when He begins to move on somebody's life. 
He changes lives. Jesus said you must be born again. And that happens by the moving of the Spirit. I read this week of a, of a fair somewhere going on in the country, a, a F-A-I-R, a fair. And all of a sudden a wind came from nowhere. And the wind just lifted the tent right off the ground and brought it crashing down. Nobody felt it coming. Nobody saw it coming. They were interviewing all these people about how all of a sudden from nowhere this wind came. And then it was gone just as quickly. Jesus said, is that way with the moving of the Holy Spirit? You're sitting there lost in your sin. You're sitting there living life on your own. You're sitting there living in ways that you should not, not honoring God, not walking with Him, minding your own, and suddenly the Holy Spirit blows through. Jesus said, so it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. He touches you. He convicts you. He calls you. He changes you. And you are turned into another person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and all has become new. So a move of God begins and ends with an outpouring of God's mighty spirit. He falls just like that wind blows. The outpouring of God's mighty Holy Spirit. And please understand today that the day of Pentecost was just the beginning. It was not the end. The day of Pentecost was the first opening of the floodgates that testified. The Spirit of God was now available to everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. If you repent and come to Jesus and give Him your heart, you're a candidate for the moving of the Spirit of God. As you know that all throughout the history of the church, outpourings of the Holy Spirit have taken place, and it's always brought the same results. Now I'm going to share with you what a move of God looks like. I can only go over three things because of time, but let me share with you three key hallmarks of what a move of God looks like. The first thing you will always see in a genuine move of God is deep conviction over sin. You will see deep conviction over sin. Listen to what happened when Peter stood up after the Spirit of God fell and he preached his first message. Listen to what it says. Now when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as Peter preached, they were stung, cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What do I do? Help us. What do we do? We're convicted of our sin." Mark it down, if it's a real move of God, its first hallmark will be the conviction of sin. Now, I'm not talking about a guilt trip that destroys you. I'm talking about a supernatural awareness that you've got a sin debt with God. There is a sin debt with God. Sin, our culture doesn't even like to talk about sin anymore. Don't talk about, and, and, and sadly, a lot of preachers won't talk about sin anymore. And, and God forgive them. Because if I'm a doctor and you got cancer and I don't tell you, I, your death is on my hands. And I'm telling you there is a thing called S-I-N, sin. It means we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. We've all broken God's word, all broken God's commandments. David said against you and you only have I sinned. I was born in sin, shaped in iniquity. The entire human race has been placed under the verdict of sin by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And do you know that the Holy Spirit was sent to the world to convict the world of sin? 
Jesus said when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world. And another word for that is convince the world that it is in the wrong about sin. Oh, I'll tell you, America's problem is not drugs. America's problem is not liberalism. America's problem is not abortion, not the root. The root is America is drowning in sin. And we've got to repent. And until we repent of sin, we're going to lay under that heavy load. And I wish that I could go into Washington and I would give anything to address Congress, the Senate, the House. I'm telling you, I would salivate to do such a thing. You better quit lying. You better quit stealing. You're in sin. You need to repent. But don't get me on politics. See, America's got a problem. It's a sin problem. And Jesus said, when the Spirit of God comes, the first hallmark of a real move of God, what does it look like? People begin to get, get convicted of sin. The Holy Spirit convinces us of the fact of sin. It's real. Of the fault of sin. We've all done it. Of the folly of sin. It is foolishness. Of the filth of sin. It corrupts us. Of the fountain of sin. Where does it come from? It flows up out of our own corrupt nature. Jesus said, where do all the sins come from? From your inner man, from within you, from the heart. That's where sin comes from. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of the fruit of sin. The fruit of sin, the end of sin, the result of sin, the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit testifies to the entire world that they are guilty before God. This is why some people will do anything to avoid coming to a church that ministers the Word of God. They'll do anything to avoid you when they see you coming. Because if you're going to realistically, non-obnoxiously, sincerely share the Lord with them, they don't want to hear it because they know as soon as they hear about Jesus Christ, they're going to be convicted of their sin. And so they'll duck and dodge you, duck and dodge the church. They will not open up this book because it convicts them of their sin. But the day that you wake up and you say, I'm a sinner in the presence of God, you need to mark that down as one of the greatest days of your life. Because that means you're one step from salvation when you are convicted of your sin. You don't have a psychological hang-up only. You've got a sin problem. Can I tell you, he was hung up for your hang-ups. So when you realize I'm in sin, I need a Savior, what must I do? It's a great day in your life. A great day. Now the next hallmark of a move of God is large numbers of people are saved. You tell me you're in a move of God, I tell you, show me the people that are being saved. Because I promise you when there is a real move of God, people begin to get saved. Large numbers of them. In the first outpouring at Pentecost, Peter's sermon was 25 verses long. You can read it in two or three minutes. Yet after his message, the Bible records those who accepted his message and were baptized, and 3,000 were added to their number that one day. 3,000 people saved in one message. 3,000 saved in a day. When the Spirit falls, there is conviction. With the conviction comes salvation. Acts 2.47 tells us what the early church looked like. I read this and I say, oh Lord, give it to us. 
Because listen to this. The Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Saved. Acts 4 says that 5,000 were added to the 3,000 that were growing in numbers. Just a few days later, they preached again. 5,000, so 8,000 souls, not counting those that were being saved by the day, were added to the church. Salvation. Acts 6 says the number of the disciples were multiplying, not growing, multiplying. Acts 6 again says they multiplied greatly and a large number of priests were believing. Acts 9 says the churches were multiplying. That means they were not adding one to one. They were multiplying. It was astronomical growth. And where was it coming from? People being saved. Acts 16 says churches were strengthened and grew in numbers daily. The salvation of souls was a hallmark of the first outpouring. And church history tells us that every time God has moved, there has been a massive ingathering of souls. You know what I'm excited about? I believe in 2010 we're going to see a massive ingathering of souls. Matter of fact, I'm preaching this so that we can experience it. I'm getting this on your mind so you can pray for it. How many of you know somebody who needs to be saved? Seriously, in your house, your spouse, your kids, your grandparents, your neighbors, your coworkers. Anybody in here doesn't know somebody who needs to be saved? I want in your bubble because I'm surrounded by people who need to be saved. And so I'm, I'm showing you that when God moves, there is no escaping it. Conviction of sin begins to grab the hearts of people and they begin to cry out and they get saved. Church history, read it, scan it. Let me give you a couple of examples of what's happened in the history of our church. This, not turning point, but the church of Jesus Christ. A man named Jonathan Edwards, first pastored in Massachusetts in the 1700s at the beginning of America. Some women in his church began to intercede for revival. When a move of God suddenly broke out in Jonathan Edwards' church, let me say it again, in Massachusetts. That's lost on some of you, not on most of you. Massachusetts being the most liberal place in the entire United States of America. But there was a great move of God there. Now listen, revival suddenly broke out in Massachusetts and Jonathan Edwards kept a journal and here's what he wrote. Quote, the whole town seemed to be full of the presence of God. The revival struck first the young people and then the older folks. All over town, the bars were soon empty. People ended their quarrels they had with other people in town. And they ceased backbiting. Boy, then you know God's moving. They ceased backbiting and meddling with other people's matters. The, the cessation of gossip was so obvious, he wrote about it in his journal because the Holy Spirit was moving and people were being convicted of sin. Listen to what went on to happen. He writes that while he preached from his pulpit, grown men and women stood and cried out. Some got down on the floor, bawling like babies, pleading with the minister and to God for mercy on their soul. At one point in the sermon, the cries of the people drowned out the preacher and he had to pause for quite some time before resuming because of all the people standing up and crying out to get saved. That night after church was over with and everybody had gone home, 
he records in almost every household. Men and women could be heard crying out for God to save them. Before it was all over, 500 souls were added to the church in the community in one day alone. I repeat to you, when the Holy Spirit really moves, it doesn't just stay within the four church walls. It gets out there on the highways and the hedges. It follows you home. It follows you to the workplace. When God moves, you can't keep it in the church walls. When God moves, it's a mighty rushing wind, and it gets out there in the streets. And here's people in their homes, obviously, clearly, audibly crying out for God to touch them. When God moves, it's a glorious thing. When that wind blows, it's a beautiful thing. Beginning around the same time that Jonathan Edwards was having this kind of revival in early America, across the ocean, beginning around 1736, what church historians call the Great Awakening began in England, led by George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. George Whitfield was gifted with a voice that could be heard without any assistance because there were no microphones or sound systems. He could be heard in a crowd of twenty to 30,000 people, clear as a bell. As a college student, God touched George Whitfield. He began a fellowship with the Wesley brothers in college. And as God began to move on him, he began to feel firmly impressed. He was to preach the gospel to the masses. So he records in his journal that, quote, as the move of the Spirit increased, one might see on Sunday mornings, long before daylight, the streets filled with people going to church with their lanterns swinging in their hands to light the way. They got up long before the sun rose, lit the lanterns, headed to church. Nobody had to ask them to. They couldn't wait to darken the doors of the church to get into the presence of God and see Him continue to move. On February 17, 1739, near Bristol, England, Whitfield decided to take his message to the open fields. Why? Because the Church of England had kicked him out. Wouldn't let him preach in their pulpits because he was preaching, you must be born again if you're ever going to see the kingdom of God. So they kicked him out. Now, it goes on to say that he began... By going into the fields where you could speak down into the coal mines where the poor coal miners were working. He shouted down into the coal mine that he was going to preach that day in the open field and they were all welcome to come. Think about that. Here's a cave. Hey, today I'm going to be preaching the gospel of Christ. It echoed down in the cold where these coal miners lived to be about 30 years old because of the disease of emphysema that afflicted their lungs from all that time in the coal dust. The poor illiterate coal miners who had been the terror of the city due to their rough immoral lifestyles spread the word amongst each other. Guess what happened? Historical fact. By the time Whitfield arrived to preach, 20,000 miners had gathered to hear him. Whitfield wrote of the experience, you got to get this, this moves me, I've read this a million times, it still brings a tear to my eye, quote, the first evidence of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their coal blackened cheeks. Sea of coal blackened faces listening to the gospel 
weeping. He goes on to record hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction, resulting in sound and thorough salvations. When the Holy Spirit moves, conviction of sin falls. And when that falls, people begin to cry out for salvation. Oh, we need that today. We need that today. And I want you to know, just for those of you that have been lied to about the roots of America, George Whitfield crossed the ocean several times. He preached in the early American colonies. He was good friends with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin went to hear him to see if it was true that his voice carried through a crowd of 30,000 people. They became friends. He recorded the facts about Whitfield's ministry. He talked about how his ministry changed entire towns and cities. And America, your America, my America, that right now is under secular humanistic assault, and we're being told that we were not a Christian nation, this nation in the early American colonies was bathed and baptized in Holy Ghost red-hot revival. Our DNA is Christian. If you want to debate that, meet me afterwards. I'll be glad to debate with you about it. You need to be illuminated it's true. Now, then there was Charles Finney, and this is the last one I'm going to talk about today. Charles Finney was a converted attorney who began preaching in the 1800s, primarily in northeastern cities of, of America, in, like in New York. He preached great revivals in Rochester, New York, where I was born. Often, now listen to this, when the Spirit of God falls, what does the move of God look like? Often, when he would go to a city to preach, a hallowed calm noticeable even to the unsaved, seemed to settle down upon cities where he was holding meetings. Sinners were often brought under conviction of sin almost as soon as they had entered the city. I met with a man this week who's coming to be a part of our church, and he said, you know, when I walked in the door of the church building, I felt the Spirit of God touch me. Do you know how many times I've heard that? You know why that is? Because this isn't my church. This is not any, this is his church, and we pray that his spirit goes ahead of us. And he said, as a matter of fact, really, I first felt it when I drove up into the parking lot. See, the Holy Spirit is a tangible presence. The Bible says in the book of Mark that the presence of the Lord was there to heal. Holy Spirit's a tangible presence. Have you ever felt the presence of evil? Have you ever gone into a place and felt the, the presence, the tangible presence of evil? That's because there's a real enemy, a real devil. Conversely, you can walk into a place and feel a tangible presence of the Holy Spirit's power. Amen. It is estimated that during the year 1857 to 58, in one year, of Finney's ministry, over 100,000 persons were led to Christ as the result of his labors, while 500,000 persons professed conversion to Christ in the revival that followed his meetings. And that's when America's population was an 1,800 population, not now. That's like three or four or five million coming to Christ now in our day. 100,000 saved in one meeting. 500,000 saved 
as residue from the meeting. The Holy Spirit falls, there's conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit falls, there is massive salvation. And then it leads me to the final hallmark of what a move of God looks like. And I want to be real clear about this. A real move of God. Jesus is front and center. He said, when the Spirit of God comes, He will glorify me. Let me tell you about a real move of God. Kathy and I met in a move of God. We were in the Jesus movement of the early 70s and late 60s. And we saw God move in a sovereign way. Our church went from 400 to 4,000 people in about a year. We saw people packing into a place just to get into the presence of God. We saw a time when people were being saved on the streets with no witness. We saw times when if you just started singing one song, the people did the rest because they got lost in a, in a beautiful time of worship and praise and lifting up and magnifying and adoring and extolling the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the darling of any true move of God. It will not focus on a person. It won't focus on flesh. It won't focus on the name on a sign. A real move of God, Jesus is the darling of that move. He is the focus. He is the passion. He is the obsession. He is the love. He is the longing. He is the heartbeat. And He is the message of any true move of God. You know why people come here? Because they don't come here to hear me say something. They come to hear about Jesus Christ and to worship in His presence. Our message is not a philosophy. Our message is not a religion. Our message is, if you need to be delivered, Jesus is your answer. If you need peace, Jesus is your peace. If you need healing, Jesus is your healing. If you need an answer, Jesus is your guide. He is your wisdom. He is your knowledge. He is your understanding. Whatever it is that is a need in your life, the sum total of the answer is found not in a religion but in a person the person of Jesus Christ. I told you that Peter's sermon was 25 verses long. You know what? Read it. It starts with Jesus, explains Jesus, and ends with Jesus. We have one message here, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when a real move of God happens, the people fall in love with Jesus. That's why it was called the Jesus Movement. Because if you got around those of us that have been touched by it, and there were thousands and thousands all throughout America, the, the Lord moved in every state in this nation. All you heard was Jesus. If you talked to any of us, the first thing we said was, do you know Jesus? Uh, well, you, couldn't, you couldn't shut us up. We would witness to a bush if we couldn't find a person. And our message was Jesus. I want another Jesus movement. Not a... I thank God for motivational seminars, but listen, if you want to get really motivated, get to know Jesus. He's the ultimate motivational speaker and the ultimate motivator. He'll motivate you to get your life together, to make something of your life. He'll bring the best out in you. He will make you to be something you could never have been on your own. I mean, I want another Jesus movement. So when the Holy Spirit, what does a move of God look like? People begin to fall under conviction of sin. No more explaining it away. No more making excuses. No more, well, it's just my mother didn't treat me right or my dad did me wrong. No, no, no. It's conviction of sin. And then, save me, Lord. You begin to see salvations. 
And when you get in the middle of that move, you're going to hear Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus the other. That's what a move of God looks like. Can we stand together today? How many of you would like that power to fall on your life in a fresh way? Well, can I give you a little key? Jesus said, your, holy, your, your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to them and ask Him. Now, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. But that doesn't mean you've got all that you can get. You can worship the Lord. You, you can have about as much of the Holy Spirit as you want to have. I told the first service, when the Holy Spirit touches your heart, it starts a fire. It's that burning bush that Moses saw that was burning but wasn't burned up. Perfect picture of the heart touched by the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost heartburn doesn't hurt. It sets your heart on fire with zeal, with passion, with love. Now, how many of you know what a bellows is? You know, you get those bellows and you get in front of your fireplace, the fires start to go out, and you bring those, that bellows together and it blows the, 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 the fire into a flame again. Okay. Here is your bellow. Right here. Somebody was talking to me this week and they said, man, I just, I just kind of don't feel real spiritually alive. And I said, are you in the Word? They said, no. And I said, well, of course you're not feeling spiritually alive because he starts the fire but then you've got to stoke the fire stir up the gift of God because that's what a move of God does it gets you lit again those of you that are saved and it saves the lost so open this up every day and realize that as you read it it's doing that to the flame in your heart Stir into a flame the Spirit of God in your life. Father, I just thank you right now for the presence of the Spirit of God. And that, Lord, there is power for your church. And I pray that every person here today who has not known the power of God will be touched by that power. Now, I want you to breathe a prayer. Would you right now, church? And just say, Lord, what I heard today, touch me with that power and remove anything that would keep me from it. Now, that's a dangerous prayer. Give the Lord a hand of praise today, can you? Thank you, Lord.